This morning we're going to conclude our Make Way series. And some of you may be sitting there thinking, we, there are a whole lot of kings we didn't talk about. Yeah, we kind of picked a few of the kings to look at because many of the stories are very similar to the others. But the point was to try to understand how those kings are preparing the way, pointing the way, and making way for the ultimate king, Jesus, whose birth we celebrate in just a few weeks. Well, this morning, we come to the king Hezekiah. Hezekiah. Funny name, pretty easy to spell. Spell it just like you say it. Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah is a king in the south, so he's a king of Judah, not a king of Israel. And Hezekiah is, is a really good guy. In fact, I would encourage you, you can read his story. 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19, just two chapters. 2 Chronicles, I think it's like 19 through 21. Slightly different perspective, but you'll learn a lot of really neat things about King Hezekiah. Now, before we get to actually look at some details about one incident in his life, we're not going to look at his whole life. He's a really good guy. You'll learn some neat things about his life. We're going to look at one incident in his life. But before we do that, I want to give you a, just a short little perspective talk, a perspective talk. And here's the reason why. A couple of times people have said to me uh, through this series, well, I notice like bad fathers have sons that are pretty bad too. And good fathers tend to have good sons. Yeah, well, you've heard those expressions, right? Like father, like son. You've heard that? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Have you seen the progressive commercials? Yes, believe it or not, we are becoming our parents, as frightening as that is. And there's a lot of truth to that. And as I was thinking about becoming like our parents, I'm thinking, and Christmas is a really great time to see the truth of that. My guess is you eat the same kind of Christmas foods that you ate as a family growing up. And you open gifts probably with the same traditions. We do a lot of the same things that our parents did because families are really influential. But that doesn't mean they have to control. Families are influential, but change is possible. Let me uh, show you why that's important when it comes to King Hezekiah. Hezekiah's father was named Ahaz. Not Ahab would it be. He was, a, he was a northern king. Ahaz with a Z, he was a southern king. And Ahaz was a terrible king. In fact, here are just a couple verses from 2 Kings 16. And let me just read through them to show you how terrible this guy was. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in, in the eyes of the Lord his God. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel. He even sacrificed his own son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations, etc. Ahaz was an idolater. Ahaz was a terrible king. Well, you would expect then, Hezekiah, like father, like son, Hezekiah, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but that's not true. A summary statement from Hezekiah's life is in uh, 2 Kings 18. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands of the Lord, the commands of the Lord had given Moses. So Hezekiah's a good guy, but his father's a really bad guy. Yeah, those little um, cliches have a lot of truth to them. We are an awful lot like our parents, 
what, how our parents lived and what they did doesn't mean that we have to be that way. In fact, um, if you sometimes fear that maybe uh, some of your habits and some of your lifestyle is going to kind of rub off on your kids, you're afraid of that. Or if you look to your parents and say, oh my goodness, I don't want to repeat that. A really good chapter for you to read is Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18 has three different generations in it. Let me just tell you. The first generation is of a righteous father. A righteous father. But he has a terribly unrighteous son. But the unrighteous son has a righteous grandson. So you got a righteous father, an unrighteous son, and a righteous grandson. How can that be? Well, Ezekiel actually gives us the answer. The answer comes through repentance. And if you look right kind of at the last section of the verse, get a new heart and a new spirit. Change comes on the inside first and then permeates the outside. You see, our world and all the experts of our day, at least most of them say, no, 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 change is external. Fake it till you make it. Live the way you want on the outside. No, 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 true change happens inside. The way the New Testament describes that same reality is you must be born again. Something new on the inside. Get a new heart, a new birth. That then translates to change on the outside. So true change can happen. You don't have to repeat the patterns, and you don't necessarily have to live out all the privileges that come from your parents. Parents are very influential, but they're not determinative. You and I can make decisions and have to be responsible for the decisions we make. Well, back to Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a good guy. His father Ahaz was a bad guy. But if you're going to understand the incident that I want to talk about today, you have to realize conflict exists. And let me tell you about the conflict that Ahab, 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 Hezekiah was experiencing. And remember, Hezekiah, southern king. Troubles brewing in the north. Big troubles brewing in the north. In fact, the, the Twitter feed's blowing up. All the Instagram pictures are terrible. The Assyrians have come in. They've conquered the northern kingdom. They've destroyed the northern kingdom. They've exiled all the people up there, and they're making their way south. The Assyrians are headed south. Judah and Jerusalem are kind of next on their hit list. So Hezekiah rules in Jerusalem. All the people of the southern kingdom are now living in fear. Let me tell you just a little bit about the uh, Assyrians. Brutal beyond belief. In fact, intimidation was one of their primary weapons. If they were going to take over a city, they wouldn't just kill the people. They would decimate them. They would cut the limbs off of all the people. They would pile the heads in big pyramids at, at the city entrance. They would hang people's heads and arms and legs from trees around uh, nearby. So anybody going by would say, hey, if I don't follow the Assyrians, if I don't do what the Assyrians are calling me to do, this may wind up to me, to my people, and Hezekiah, to my city. The Assyrians are headed south. They begin to conquer different um, towns and cities around Jerusalem. Eventually, they wind up surrounding Jerusalem. Over 250,000 Assyrians. 
There are only about 10 or 15,000 people in Jerusalem, not, not, or 10, not 10 or 15,000 soldiers, 10 or 15,000 people surrounded by 250,000 of the world's best military, militarily trained tyrants. They send a trash-talking commander, and he begins to shout loudly, Who do you all think you are? If the king of Assyria would send you horses, you couldn't even put enough riders on them. And eventually the people in Jerusalem are getting nervous, and so they send a message. Don't talk to us in Hebrew. The people can understand. Speak to us in Aramaic. Aramaic is kind of the language that only the upper class and kings would know. So speak to the upper class, and then we'll go tell Hezekiah what, what you're saying. Don't speak to us so the people can hear. And you know what the commander says? I'm going to continue to speak in the language that they know. Because after all, it's not just you guys that are going to be drinking your urine and eating your own dung. It's going to be everybody in the city. So they all need to hear. Scared to death. Put yourself into the shoes of Hezekiah and the other people in Jerusalem. They know the reputation of the Assyrians. They know the recent history that all those cities and towns have been conquered. They know that the soldiers are around the city and that they've begun to stop the supplies from coming in and it's just a matter of time and before they'll come in and destroy it all. What are you going to do? Fear and tremble? It all comes down to a question, doesn't it? One question. Actually, the commander that's sent from Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, he even asked the question. Here's the question. You can actually read it in Second Kings 18. On whom are you depending? That's always the question, isn't it? On whom are you depending? Now, when the Assyrian commander asked the people in Jerusalem the question, he obviously is saying, if you're depending on God... Isn't he the same God that all, you, all the Israelites up north were worshiping? And we conquered those towns. And all the other cities and countries that we conquered, they worshiped other gods and we conquered all of them. On whom are you depending? You need to give up your dependence and faith in your God and start trusting us, the Assyrians. We're going to make it easy for you. We'll take you to a new land. You'll have your own vines. You'll be able to take care of life. We'll take care of you and you'll have life exactly the way you want it. On whom are you depending? It's kind of easy to sit here and answer for Hezekiah, isn't it? Put yourself in his shoes, though. A quarter million crack troops surrounding your city. People on the inside starving to death. You know the reputation and all the barbarism. On whom are you depending? We face that question every day, though, don't we? Yeah, we probably don't have Assyrians surrounding us, but we've got situations that face us that seemingly put us in a similar situation. A bad report from a doctor on whom are you depending? Fear because finances are not the way you want them to be. On whom or what are you depending? So maybe we need to do a little inventory this morning. Who or what are we trusting? 
Are you trusting your savings, your retirement, your reputation? Are you trusting the experts? Are you trusting your morality? Are you trusting your do-gooding? Are you trusting relationships and networks that you have? After all, you can call in lots of people and they'll stand to defend you and be with you. On whom are you depending? That's always the question. In fact, I'd be willing to bet that that question in one form or another comes up in the Bible literally thousands of times. On whom are you depending? What are you trusting in? Well, you already know kind of Hezekiah's story because we read the verse earlier. Here's the verse that tells us what Hezekiah was depending on. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. And he didn't do it when he was on vacation, lying on a beach with his son and no COVID around. Hezekiah did it in the most desperate situation you can imagine. He trusted in the Lord. But I want to show you a couple of other things in that same chapter, because sometimes I think when we say, oh, you've got to trust the Lord, depend upon the Lord, that that really doesn't have consequences or actions that follow. We just feel like we're kind of trusting in God, but we're really not going to do anything different. Notice what Hezekiah does because he trusts the Lord. So Hezekiah trusts the Lord. That comes early in the chapter. Well, if you keep reading 2 Kings 18, you soon come across these words. When Hezekiah heard this, the report from the commander, trash talking, right? When he heard it, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and went into the temple of the Lord. Like, what the heck is that? Well, when you tear your clothes, right, that was a sign um, in the ancient world, particularly with the Jews, that was a sign of despair, a sign of lament, a sign that your resources are completely gone. There's nothing you can trust in. And so you're turning from whatever it's a sign of repentance. It's a sign. I'm trying this. I'm totally weak. I have nothing in my arsenal to combat this. He rends his garments as a picture of his heart being broken. That's what he does. But that's not all that he does. Look at these next. Look at the next section. When King Hezekiah's officials came to him, uh, came to Isaiah. No, wait a minute. How did Isaiah show up? Okay. Now, here's an important thing for you to keep in mind. If you've never read through the Old Testament and you kind of wonder how things fit together, uh, here's, here's a really cool thing that will kind of help you read. The books of 1 Samuel through 2 Chronicles, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, they kind of provide the history that the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, that those guys show up in, right? So it isn't like you read all the history, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, Chronicles, and then the prophets come. No, no, no. The prophets actually are doing their prophesying in the context of first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, and first and second Chronicles. So Hezekiah, while he's king, Isaiah, the prophet's on the scene. And so Hezekiah doesn't only kind of repent and recognize, acknowledge his weakness and his failure. He sends to Isaiah to hear what God says. He needs God's word on the issue, right? I mean, he didn't have a Bible the way we do. And so, no, he sends for the prophet. And so his people go to Isaiah and say, hey, Isaiah, we need a word from God. As you see, the Assyrians are surrounding the city. What in the world are we supposed to do? They're asking us on whom do we depend 
And Isaiah says, tell your master, tell Hezekiah. And remember, Isaiah's in the city too, right? They're all, in their mind, all about ready to be killed. Here's what Isaiah says. Tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord says. No, 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 go back. Do not be afraid of what you've heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Don't be afraid. Those words are empty, and that army is nothing in my sight and before me. They're not only standing and waging war against you, they're standing and waging war against me. You have nothing to fear. So what's Hezekiah do? He repents, right? And then he sends for a word from God. He's listening to what God says. And then he prays. Now you can change it. Then he prays. And, you know, his, his prayer's lengthy, but you know what? It, this is kind of worth it. Well, I, I could just read the prayer this morning and say, well, yeah, why didn't you do that? Well, let me just read some of it. And now think, put yourself in his shoes, right? He's in a city among dozens and dozens of other cities that have been annihilated by the army surrounding his city. And here's what he prays. Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone, fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. You know, if you think about what Hezekiah did, and you listen to what Carlos said last week, kind of sounds similar, doesn't it? You remember, Carlos said, you um, seek and you pray and you listen. What's Hezekiah doing? He's seeking, he's listening to what God says, and he's praying. He repents. He listens to God through Isaiah. And he prays. Well, you can probably tell by the prayer and the fact that we're reading all this that um, God wins. But he wins in pretty remarkable fashion. In fact, um, I, I call the next verse here uh, the victory I call it the greatest battle never fought. Greatest battle never fought. Now, here's how the battle goes. That night, right? So Hezekiah prays. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, they were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Israel, broke camp. Yeah, you bet he did. And he withdrew. And he returned to Nineveh, capital of Syria. And he stayed there. <laughs> Think about that. 250 crack troops. 
the best training, the most ruthless guys, one angel. That's not a fair fight, right? <laughs> one angel and 185,000 troops dead. The other troops take off and head back to Nineveh. Interesting, Hezekiah did nothing but seek and pray and listen. Hezekiah did nothing but repent. He kind of tore his garments and he listened to God and he prayed to God and said, Lord, uh, this is beyond us. Uh, you take over, you deliver us, you bring victory and the greatest battle never fought. Think about how Hollywood would play this, right? If this battle is going to be fought, we would have had a couple verses on Hezekiah tearing his clothes, listening to Isaiah and praying, and we would have had 45 chapters on battle, right? There would have been swords and clubs and tanks and weapons. No, no, no. We get one sentence. One sentence. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000. And you say, one sentence, and the battle's over. I mean, after all that, don't you think it, the battle deserves more than a sentence, right? I mean, wouldn't you like to know how he did it? Blood and guts, all that? No, nothing. Yeah. Do you know why? I don't know the real answer, but let me give you my guess. Because the real battle is not the battle between the angel and the Assyrians. That's not the real battle. The real battle is based on who Hezekiah is going to trust. That's the real battle. On whom will you depend that's why we get, if you take Chronicles together, we get like four or five chapters on, on whom will you depend and one sentence about the battle. You know, we often want to reverse that, right? We get like one sentence on, on whom are you going to depend, and then we want to talk about the battle and all the things. No, no, no. The real battle is who we're going to trust and what that actually means. Trusting God, believing in God, isn't just kind of saying, oh yeah, I believe God can do this. No, it's actually doing something based on that belief. It's hearing what God says through his word and acting upon it. It's praying and saying, Lord, this is beyond me. If left to my own devices, I'm dead here. But I trust you somehow, some way, you're going to come through. The people in Jerusalem, Hezekiah included, do not even raise a finger and the battle's over. You know, one of the things that we've been noticing in the series is that uh, the kings are all signposts. You know that? Um, I'm reading a book now by uh, one of my favorite authors, N.T. Wright. Um, and his new book is called Broken Signpost. I want to say he stole the signpost thing from me, but the broken thing is really good because none of the signposts in the Bible are actually perfect sign. They're all kind of messed up a little bit, right? So all the kings we've looked, well, we looked at David, we've looked at Solomon, we looked at Saul, we looked at Asa last week, we look at Rehoboam and Jeroboam. They're all signs, but they're broken signposts, right? Little glimmers of hope, but lots and lots of disappointment. There are signs pointing to the need for the ultimate king, and there are signs pointing to Jesus, the ultimate king. In some way, they're picturing him, but they're all broken. None of them are right. Well, in this incident from Hezekiah's life, we have a broken signpost. It's really a signpost. And you know what the signpost is? It goes something like this. You and I contribute nothing 
to the deliverance and victory that Jesus wins for us. We do nothing. The people in Jerusalem didn't run out with their swords and, you know, um, axes and stuff and beat up the Assyrians. No, no, we, do, we contribute nothing. This is God's deal from beginning to end. What's our part? Well, to repent, recognize our own weakness, recognize our frailty that we can't do it, listen to what God says and pray and act in response to what he says. That's the signpost. You know, a, a couple of verses kept coming to mind this week, I guess because it's the season, but also because of the signpost. Here are a couple of verses from Matthew. And tell me if you don't hear or you, you can't read the broken signpost in the background. Joseph's considering uh, getting rid of Mary. They're engaged. She's found to be pregnant. He's doesn't buy the whole God's babies thing. He's considering getting, away, uh, getting rid of her. But the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Not, he will help the people fight their battle against the sin. Not, he'll come alongside and teach them really good methods of self-help so they'll be able to better themselves. No, no, no. He will save his people from their sin. Just like God brought the victory to Hezekiah and all of his other people in Jerusalem, so Jesus brings the victory for us. Not against the Assyrians, but against sin and death. There's a little broken signpost in the Hezekiah and the Assyrian story that finds its ultimate completion in Jesus, in the Christmas story. Let's pray.